have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and uh, you're just really not interested in what they're talking about? You know, they're saying stuff, but I mean, your mind's just elsewhere and you don't even care about the topic really. Maybe you try to feign a little bit of interest, but you really don't care. It really doesn't matter to you too much. Or maybe the tables have been reversed and you're the one talking and you can tell the person you're talking to, eyes are glassing over, they're tuned out, their mind is a million different places, but they're not on you. I can tell you, you know, as a public speaker, this happens all the time, right? You see people and they're on their cell phones looking down, whatever it is, but it happens. Uh, well, you know, this morning, as we continue our study through First and Second Peter, uh, it's one of those topics where as I'm studying, I'm like, oh man, is that going to happen this morning? Because it's really about leaders and how leaders should lead. And so there may be a temptation to think, well, you know, that's you, Steve. I hope you took a lot of notes and I hope you apply it. But, you know, maybe I can just kind of tune out a little bit. Well, maybe let's just see about it, okay, as we kind of go through First uh, Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, as Peter instructs leaders. Let's check it out. Uh, Peter writes, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not luring it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Did you know that the average tenure of a pastor in America is somewhere between three and four years, okay? That's about how long most pastors last. And uh, in fact, they say if you make it to seven years, you're, you're long-term, right? You've been there a long time. Uh, and people have speculated there's several reasons for this. And one of, the, one of the primary reasons is just unmet expectations, okay? Both on the part of the pastor and on the part of the people. That pastors often think, hey, if I get in, I preach the word, uh, the people are going to have the same commitment and devotion as the disciples, and it's going to be great. And sometimes uh, people have this expectation of pastors, well, hey, you got to have like every single spiritual gift, and you got to model everything like just perfectly, you know, basically walk on water. And well, both those are not true, right? Neither one of those is like reality. And so then a lot of times pastors are like, well, you know, I'm out. And I have a lot of friends, uh, well, several, I should say, who they've kind of gone through different churches, right? Because, okay, well, unmet expectations here. Let me try another one. And then by like the third or fourth church, what are they doing? They're throwing in the towel. Because, well, this, this isn't working. This, you know, they haven't found a perfect church yet. Uh, now, it's interesting. I think that's important because as Peter is writing, he's writing to leaders in a church in the context of suffering, Okay. So he's preparing a church to suffer, and you're leading a church in the context of suffering, of difficulty, of hardship, of messiness. And a lot of times when difficult hardship, messiness comes today, uh, there's a fair number of pastors who say, man, I'm out. This is too hard. I'm throwing in the towel. Let me, let me kind of run this greener pastures or something. Well, I think as we read and study, I think this is good wisdom for pastors if, if they want to have a, uh, some longevity in ministry and fruitfulness in ministry. And notice as Peter writes, okay, he's writing to fellow elders. Okay, do you, do you catch that? 
He's not putting himself above the elders he's writing to. He's not taking this place of superiority or authority or anything like that, but his brother elder, all right? He's not speaking ex-cathedra if you have a Catholic background, all right? He's simply making a passionate appeal to brother elders, fellow elders, and he's letting them know that based on his own eyewitness experience, what he's seen with his own eyes, that he recognizes that the church that you are leading has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's a really big deal. The church you're leading has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul said something very similar to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He said that you should shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So you get the idea that neither Peter or Paul could never get over the fact that the church exists because of what Jesus has done, right? I mean, we wouldn't just gather together uh, and worship Jesus if Jesus did not live a perfect life, die on the cross for our sins, raise again victorious over them, and give us his own righteousness. And so it only exists because of what Jesus has done, and he, he can never get away from that. This is God's precious possession, which costs the life of his son. Um, by the way, that's actually one of the reasons why we're actually studying through First and Second Peter right now, is because we understand that this is God's church. It's not, it's not ours, right? If it, was, if it was ours, the leadership team, we'd probably go to passages of Scripture that are maybe a little more enjoyable to read. You know, First and Second Peter, one of the, one of the things, and you're, you're picking this up, right, is, man, there's a whole lot of suffering. It's like a whole lot of just preparing you to deal with the difficulties of life. Can we just go to like, you know, the more than a conqueror stuff? I mean, sometimes there's, there's that edge. This, this stuff doesn't really tickle ears, but we think it's important that if we want to develop confidence in making disciples, wherever it is we live, work, study, and play, that where our culture is and where we really need to be at our mindset, we've got to be committed wholeheartedly to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and have this confidence that, hey, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of sorrow, difficulty, that we're, we're committed to Jesus and the lordship of Jesus. And so that's one of the reasons why we're even in this study. Uh, now, Peter, he does have some victorious lines in here. And one of the things that he says is that he's also awaiting the glory of his coming, noting that Jesus, hey, he's coming back and he's letting the elders know, hey, the, the church that you're pastoring, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back for her. So you got to prepare her so that she's ready for the return of Christ. And so that's the background, okay? That's the basis from which Peter is going to make this appeal to his fellow elders, okay? The fellow leaders of the church. And as he makes the appeal, he uses this metaphor of a shepherd and a flock. And we've talked about this before, but first century shepherds, like that was not like ideal situation. No, no little kid in Israel was like going to bed at night, just dreaming and praying and thinking, oh, if I could just be a shepherd when I grow up, you know, that'll be the life. No, nobody wanted to be a shepherd, right? His bottom of the low, totem pole was your low end community for several reasons. I mean, it's an unending task. It's like 24 seven. You basically live with the sheep and you've got to guard them, protect them, guide them, encourage them, discipline them, all kinds of things. It's, it's always going on. And then beyond that, uh, you're perpetually ceremonially unclean. Okay. You're dealing with sheep and touching things and all this. So you can never keep the law. You're never allowed in the temple for temple worship. You're, 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 you're on the outside of all the religious festivals and celebrations. You can't do any of those things. And so 
Peter, like Jesus, he uses this lowly occupation, a lowly profession as a metaphor for leading the church. And uh, how do you you lead a church like that? How do you you lead with, with care and devotion, always willing to guard and guide, equip and protect, regardless of the cost? How do you do that? Well, you do it, Peter says, not because you must, but because you are willing. And so Peter's getting at the heart. He's getting at the heart of the leader. And he says, you must have affection for your people, is really what he's talking about. And so to put it another way, uh, you should mirror the affection that Christ has for his church. You, the leader, should mirror that. You should, you should demonstrate that yourself and how you love the church. So you lead out of a love for God and a love for the people. Um, you remember when Jesus restored Peter? And, you know, Peter had denied Christ by a fire. And then you fast forward to after the resurrection and Jesus restores Peter by another fire. And they have this conversation and Jesus asked Peter three times, hey, Peter, do you love me? And Peter keeps saying, yeah, I love you. I love you. And what does Jesus say every time? Feed my sheep, right? Feed my sheep. He's encouraging, hey, you love me? Feed my sheep. This is what I'm calling you to do. Feed my sheep. How does a a leader demonstrate love for people? He preaches the word. He takes them to the Bible, explains the Bible, so you know how to apply it. This is what Paul says to Timothy, right? Preach the word in season, out of season. Take them, give them the context of scripture, help them to understand it, point them to Jesus. That's how you demonstrate love. This is the encouragement that... uh, Jesus gives Peter, that Paul gives Timothy, and that Peter gives leaders today. You lead with love for Jesus and his church. Now, there's a second important part to this appeal, and that is it's the flock that's been entrusted to you. It's the flock of God entrusted to you. So if you're tempted to think, because of your leadership responsibility, that this is your church, think again. It's not your church, it's Jesus' church, all right? He's the one who died for it. He's the one who purchased it. He's the one who who equips it. He's the one who gifts it. It's his church. You're simply an under-shepherd, okay? A caretaker of a portion of the flock. So every once in a while, you'll hear somebody say, well, you know, Pastor so-and-so's church over there. Listen, I hope nobody ever says like, hey, Pastor Steve's church on, no, no, it's not my church, all right? It's Jesus' church, And maybe you say, well, that sounds like a little haughty, like this is Jesus' church. No, every Bible-believing church is Jesus' church. What's haughty is to say, this is my church, okay? That's that's what's like taking a place of like superiority and a place that nobody deserves. And by the way, because it's Jesus' church, who are the leaders responsible to? Jesus, right? He's the chief shepherd. So how we lead, we don't feel any responsibility to like, well, you know, I got to watch out for the elder boards that went before us and the the leaders and the pastors before us. I want to make sure that they're happy. No, no, I'm not accountable to them, right? No, No leader is accountable to the leaders who went before them. Who are you accountable to as a church leader? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? He's the chief shepherd. He's the one to whom you will give an account. So what, how do you administrate leadership in this type of position? How, how do you do that? Well, for starters, you're aware of the analogy between sheep and, uh, and the flock. And 
You know, one of the analogies that often shows up that we're probably all familiar with when it comes to sheep in the Bible is, say, all sheep have gone astray, right? You see that over and over. David himself says that about his own life. Like, like a lost sheep, I've gone astray. He says that about himself. And that's true of all of us, right? Church leaders are leading people who go astray, and we ourselves go astray. None of us have arrived this side of heaven. Um, By the way, I was reading a little bit about sheep this week, and one of the things that I discovered is, you know, most animals are able to find food and water by themselves. They're really pretty good at it, and God has just kind of given them that sense. You know, an animal that's really poor at finding food and water by themselves? Sheep. They just struggle. They need a shepherd to come and to guide them and to nudge them and to push them and equip them. Say, hey, here's the food. Eat it. Here's, here's the water. Drink it. They, they need that shepherd. And you know, you know what? It becomes a great analogy for us as the church because what's our temptation in the human heart is to think that we can live life without God, right? And so we, situations come and we don't go to Jesus, Right? We, we, we look to our own strength. We look maybe to friends, other counselors, and things like that. And maybe Jesus is just another voice that we go to, but, he, but he's just that. He's just another voice. And, and what is the job of the, of the leader to do? Continually push people back to Jesus. Right? No, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. We talked about it in our uh, Men of Impact this last week, that a lot of times what we do as humans is simply look at the symptoms, right? I'm feeling all this anxiety. God, will you just give me peace, right? I just want peace. Well, we haven't really gone to the root of the issue. Why do I feel all this anxiety? You know, I just want the symptom to change. Well, at the root of it is I'm not really trusting God. There's something I'm not believing true about God right now that I believe I've got to be in control or I don't believe he is in control right now. And so what do I need? I need more Jesus. I got to go back to Jesus. By the way, we all need this right? We're all like David. We, we all go astray. Our, our mind always or often will, will go toward other things, to ourselves, whatever, and away from Jesus. So yes, leaders need other leaders in their own life who encourage them and point them back. You know, this week, like most weeks, really, I spoke to a pastor, friend, mentor of mine, and he was doing that for me and just saying, hey, Steve, he actually, he had sent me some materials that he wanted me to read and go through um, a couple of weeks ago. And he was like, hey, Steve, have you gone through those materials yet? I was like, well, I've skimmed some of them. He's like, Steve, you got to do it. Okay. And he's, he's pushing me back. He's holding me accountable. He's pushing me back, but he's calling me to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we all need that in our lives. And leaders of the church are supposed to be that for the people of the church, continually pushing them back to Jesus. By the way, um, one of the reasons why that doesn't happen often in the church or that we can settle for something less is because less is always easier, right? Less is easier. If I want to pastor a legalistic church, that becomes way easier. Why? Because here's the law, right? Here's the standard. Everybody meet this standard, all right? Everybody meets the standard. We're good. You don't meet the standard. What do you do? You pretend like you met the standard, right? Otherwise, everybody looks down on you, and there's judgmental, and that's all that. Well, okay, I'll just act like I met it then. And so, guess what? That becomes really easy for church leaders because it's always easy to pastor perfect people, right? I don't have to engage in the messiness because everyone can just pretend that we got it all together. One one of the other temptations is, I'm just going to pastor a church that has really cool programs, Listen, I was a youth pastor for a number of years. I know how to put on cool programs, right? 
We can do programs that everybody's involved in. They love it. Yeah, man, it's awesome for my kids. It's great. I love programs. We can entertain people and we can do cool things for, you know, a couple hours a week and everybody love it. And that's cool. That's not hard to do. Anybody can put on a mask for a few hours a week. Or we can do activism stuff. And, you know, hey, we're going to go out. We're going to take care of the homeless. We're going to take care of the poor, the needy. And then we can pat ourselves on the back and feel really good about ourselves because we love people more than other people. Listen, I'm not saying that none of those things are part of the Christian life. But what I'm saying is, if the church is not first and foremost about the lordship of Jesus Christ, all that other stuff that we can pat ourselves on the back with, or we can say this is what we're about, it's meaningless. It's meaningless apart from the lordship of Jesus Christ. And guess what? When he's Lord, what does that mean for us? Well, it means we're all in process. None of us have conformed yet to the image of Christ. He's in the process of conforming us. And so what does that mean? It means messiness. It means that you have to deal and engage with the difficulty, reality of humanity and our sinfulness. It creates messiness in the church. It creates sorrow and struggle and suffering and difficulty. Why? Because we're honest with one another. You know, a sad commentary in the church is some people think that this is the most like, hypocritical place there is because we just put on a mask and, hey, we want to pretend like we've all got it okay. No, no, this should be the most transparent place on the planet where we come together, we gather together, and we say, you know what? Hey, here's my struggles. Here's my hopes. Here's my fears. Here, here, here's what I'm dealing with in life. And we know that other brothers and sisters are going to come alongside us and they're going to point us to the Lordship of Jesus Christ because we understand we're all under the banner of, hey, if you're saved uh, by grace through faith, you're under the banner of no condemnation of Jesus, right? We're not under his condemnation, so I'm not putting any condemnation on you, but I am calling you to live like Jesus, to make the changes that you need to, to make and the adjustments that you need to make. And so that's what leading a healthy church looks like rather than the things that we sometimes settle for. And you know what? It's interesting because Jesus, he actually says that if you settle for anything less, you're not really a shepherd. You're a hired hand. Okay? That's what he talks about in John chapter 10, the difference between a shepherd and a hired hand. And he says, guess what? A hired hand? They're really ultimately in it for themselves, you know? They want it to be comfortable. They want it to be nice. They want to make, make money, whatever it is. That's what a hired hand does. He says, you know what a shepherd does? He's in it for the people. He wants to see the people grow and flourish and be all that God made them to be. And so, you know what Jesus says about himself? I'm a good shepherd because I'm in it for my, for my people. How do you know that I'm in it for my people? Because I lay down my life for my sheep, right? That's a good shepherd, it costs Jesus everything in order to give everything to his people. And this is what Peter's talking about here to leaders in the church. He says, you can't be in it for dishonest gain. If that's your motive, uh, you get the wrong motive. You need to be eager to serve. That term dishonest gain there, it doesn't just refer to money, okay? It includes that, right? You don't, be, don't try to be in church leadership for the money, but it goes beyond that. It's, hey, don't be in it for the platform, for the applause, for the fame, for the glory, for the pat on the backs or anything like that. If, if that's your motive, you get the wrong motive. You need to get out, right? See, the proper motive is simply an eagerness to serve. Why? Because anything else that comes with it 
applause, fame, glory, whatever else, it's not yours anyway, right? It's not yours. This is, it's all his. It's all the chief shepherds. So I'm not trying to build allegiance and faithfulness to me. I'm trying to build allegiance and faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's not about my fame. It's not about my glory, right? It's all about Jesus. This is like, um, you remember a couple years ago, I think maybe a couple years ago now, uh, the, the tragic school shooting in Uvalde, Texas? It was just awful, right? Because what happened? You got several police officers who, they don't want to go in the building because there's a shooter in there. So it's like, well, hey, we'll wait till things calm down. Hopefully the kids will be okay. Who wants a police officer like that? Nobody, right? I mean, you hire police officers so that they will go into the danger. Peter's saying the same thing about the church. No, no, nobody wants a pastor. Just like, well, you know, it's going to get hard. People are going to question your decisions. They're going to, they're going to compare you to other pastors or whatever else. Or they're going to say, oh, you should do this, you should do that. And you, you just kind of run for the hills. No, no, no. You stick in there. You, you engage the difficulty, the messiness, the hardship, all that stuff. Because guess what? Peter's also telling the church. That if you're a healthy church, all that stuff comes with the territory, right? Because what's the overall theme of 1 Peter? Because you've been chosen by God, it means you're rejected by the world. And if you're rejected by the world, there's going to be struggle, there's going to be hardship, there's going to be difficulty. And if you're a leader who just wants to leave at the first sign of difficulty, the first sign of hardship, and you're just abandoning ships saying, hey, I'm out of here, you, know, you found the wrong role, Okay. You're not equipped for this. And so he's describing, Peter's describing a leader to whom ultimately Jesus matters most. His fame, his glory, his applause, devotion to him, that matters most. The people, they matter a whole lot. Discipleship, the mission of the church, that matters a whole lot. But what doesn't matter is the paycheck uh, the perks of authority or the platform to speak or anything like that, any kind of attention, none of that matters. Because if you're in it to build a healthy church, there's going to be struggle, there's going to be difficulty, there's going to be hard time. And it's an eagerness to serve that's got to be core, an indispensable characteristic where there's just this passionate love for Jesus and his church. You know, you hear sometimes athletes when they retire, what will they sometimes say? I, I just kind of lost the love of the game. And so they step aside. If you lose the love for Jesus Christ and his church, it's time to step aside. It doesn't mean that for a church leader, there's not seasons of discouragement or sorrow or, or difficulty or questioning, right? Because you're always, there's, there's always questioning. That um, happens frequently because you're, you're looking at this and you're preaching to people when you know, I don't measure up to this. I mean, I'm still in process myself. Like people come, well, man, I was really convicted this week. I'm like, yeah, I was too. Like I, I had to study it all week. It's been, you know, working on me all week because I'm not here either. I haven't, none of us have attained to the measure of Jesus Christ, but we're all in process to that. And so there's an eagerness to equip people so that that reality becomes more and more evident in our life. There's also a manner in which the leader is to lead. Uh, Peter says that you don't lord it over the flock allotted to you, entrusted to you. Again, it's not yours, it's God's. So you don't, hey, because I'm the pastor, right? Because I'm the elder, because I'm the church leader, here's what you got to do. No, you don't, you don't just throw your authority or your position in their face or something like that. 
you, you don't try to control everything that's happen, happening or be overbearing in any kind of way. I heard one pastor, he put it this way, you're not driving cattle, you're leading sheep. And there's a big difference between driving cattle and leading sheep. Uh, cattle, what do you do? You get from behind, you take a whip, and you get them moving. Hey, go, you know, go share Jesus here. Go make disciples there. You got to go, 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 go. To lead sheep, what do you do? You get out in front. You say, here, follow me. Let's go. We're in this together. Let's do this. There's a big difference. Um, and this becomes really important because of how Jesus built his church, you know? When he birthed the church in Acts, he, he, did, he didn't birth a church that was just supposed to meet like one day a week and maybe do some programs during the week. And, and when you have it like that, it can be controllable. But Jesus, he created a church that is gonna multiply every day, that people are constantly sharing the good news of who Jesus is wherever they live, work, study, and play. And so you read through the book of Acts, what's happening? Every day people are getting saved. Every day the church is growing. How do you control something like that? When the tentacles of the church are going all over the place in society to all different aspects of culture, how do you control? You can't, right? It's too big. No man can control anything like that. But there's been a lot of poor leaders in the history of the church. And so what do they try to do? I want to control it, right? I want to make sure that, hey, everything that happens I know about, and I've got, kind of can put my imprint on it and make sure that, you know, I approve and that's good. And so I want to control it. And what happens when you control it? You naturally have to make things smaller, right? Because it has to come into the building, right? And so, hey, primarily we're going to be in the building. If we go out there, you know, I just want it to be a program that I know about. You naturally make things smaller. The church that Jesus built it's wild. It's untamed. It's, it has tentacles all over society. It was not some building that they came back to. It was, it was really houses at this time where they're, they're meeting in homes. But this is the church that Jesus built to go and impact community in the everyday stuff of life, where the church is multiplying daily, not just perhaps weekly. Um, and in fact, I believe what the church in America needs today is not more Bible studies in church buildings, but more Bible studies in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and where we, where we like to, to play and have fun. I was talking a week and a half ago to a friend of mine named Dave. Dave lives in Arizona. He's in his early 50s. Um, he's been through a lot recently. He had uh, his grandson die and then after the death of his grandson, just the stress of everything, it really developed some tension in his marriage. And so he and his wife, they separated for a time. Uh, by God's grace, they reconciled. They're back together. They're doing great. And when they came back together, they began, they began praying because both of them were really just burdened for their unsaved friends. And so they had invited all of them to the church building for a church gathering like this, but none of their unsafe friends were interested in that. They said, well, we got to do something. You know, there's burden for them. It's funny. When you pray for people, you develop a burden for them. This is what Jesus does with the disciples, right? He gets them praying so they have a burden so then they'll do something. And so Dave and his wife, they were uh, looking at the weather outside. It was October. So, okay, now it's getting nice here in Arizona, and they like to hike and do things like that. So they invited some of their unsafe friends to go on a hike with them. 
And they said, hey, they, they, they were straight up front about it. And they said, and after we're done with the hike, we'll do a Bible study. Okay, I'll just we'll read through a passage of scripture and just ask some questions. I'm not going to be preaching at you, but, you know, we'll go through, a, th- go through studying the scriptures together. Well, they did it. Eight of their friends showed up. Eight of their friends in October. They go out. And Dave and his wife, hey, this is such a success. Let's just keep doing this. And so I had known about that. And then a week and a half ago, I hadn't talked to him since the fall. And a week and a half ago, I'm talking with Dave. And so I asked, hey, how's, how's it going? He's like, it's incredible. Last week, we had over 50 people out on the hike with us. And we've seen so many unbelieving people get saved and now following Jesus. He says, it's so wild too, because you never know what's going to happen in one of these Bible studies, right? These people they don't have any kind of like traditional church experience, okay? They maybe been like a handful of times in their own life, their whole life. They don't really know, you know, what you're supposed to do. And so all kinds of crazy things will happen. And he tells me, hey, this last one, a lady shows up with a shofar. A shofar, if you're not familiar, it's one of these big like ram horns that's used in Israel and stuff. It, it was used at the, uh, the um, when Moses gave the Ten Commandments and things like that. I mean, it's, it's just kind of wild. And you hear this horn, and he says, they're in the Bible study, and all of a sudden this lady just starts blasting the shofar like right in the middle of it and as like a blessing over what's happening. He's like, you never know what's going to happen. It's just, it's, it's stuff like that. And, and he says, hey, next week, we're going to do this hike, and we're going to go through this canyon, and then at the end of the canyon, there's like this natural amphitheater, and we think we might get over 70 people. I mean, because it just, somehow God's just doing something, it just keeps multiplying. You know, it all started with a husband and a wife who they're brought back together, they've reconciled, and they're just praying for their unsaved friends, and they know invites to a church building is not going to move the needle. And so, hey, here's what we like to do. How can we use this to win people. And so, you know, Dave, he's an incredible example and encourager to me. Um, but so are his, his leaders, the leaders at his church. I've never met them, but I know they're good, godly leaders because of a couple reasons. One, Dave doesn't feel so burdened by like commitments to like church building programmatic stuff that he doesn't have the margin in his schedule to do something like this. And then number two, his church leaders aren't putting the weight on, on him like, hey, Dave, like, can you try to get those people here? Like, it'd be really cool if we just added like 50 more people next week. You know, that'd be a lot of fun. Uh, no, that's not the pressure that's put on Dave. In fact, it's, it's Dave, you're actually planting a church right now. This is what they've told him. You're actually planting a church right now. How can we help you? You know, what can we do to come alongside you and be successful as you're discipling now all these brand new baby believers? That's good, godly leadership, right? It's not selfish. It's not, hey, how can I make this kingdom bigger? It's how can I make his kingdom bigger? And I want to equip you and release you to go do that. And so good, godly leaders, they lead with selflessness. And how do you lead with that type of open-handedness? How do you lead with that type of selflessness? Because all of us want to see things grow, right? We all want to see things. But what kind of growth are we looking for? And so it comes down to motivation. And it's interesting. When Peter writes, he said, the motivation for the leader is not duty or job or obligation or anything like this. But for the leader of God's church, the motivation is the future appearing of Jesus Christ. right? That you know he's coming back. And I know that sometimes his return can almost get couched in like a, almost a fearful kind of a way, right? 
it's like, it's, it's like when you're at home and you're doing chores or something and you know, like your parents have told you, hey, uh, we're going to be back at any time and you better have the house ready. And so there's almost this fear, like, well, I want to make sure the house is done because I don't want to get in trouble when they return. Now, that's not how Peter's writing this. This is not some fear like, hey, you better be doing what you're supposed to be doing because Jesus is coming at any moment. You never know. No, no, no. It's an encouragement. It's this hope. It's this yearning. It's this longing. Because one of the things you know as a leader is, I'm not equipped for this. I mean, God equips me, but this isn't my skill. This isn't my message. I'm confronted with my own failures and shortcomings all the time. And I'm leading people and pointing people to Jesus. And the people I'm leading and pointing, they've got shortcomings and they've got failures. And we've all got issues. But the remedy is coming. The chief shepherd is returning. And he's going to make all things right. So keep on working. It doesn't mean you throw in the towel when things get hard. Of course things are going to be hard. Because this is an upside down world. So continue at it. Be faithful. Don't run away from the fire. Don't abandon the ship. Don't just stand outside the building. Yes, there's suffering. There's hardship. There's difficulty. There's danger. There's messiness. But the chief shepherd is returning. And Peter says when he returns, he's going to give you, brother elder, the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, that's pretty cool. You should also know, though, that the book of Revelation tells us all the believers get a crown, all right? It's not just like, okay, just the elders get one, just the leaders get one. No, no, everybody gets one. And the, uh, the term that Peter uses here is the term Stephanos, okay? It means crown, and it was the type of crown that was often given to military uh, leaders and athletes, okay? And it was often made of all, an olive tree or an oak tree or a myrtle tree, and the branches were all twisted together to make a crown. And oftentimes they'd have flowers on them, usually they're violets or roses. And Peter, I think there's an illusion here, because what happens to all those crowns? Well, they eventually fade away, right? I mean, the flowers die, they don't, they don't look so good anymore, the, the wood kind of rots, it, it doesn't last forever, And what he's saying is here is you're going to get a crown that lasts forever. And the glory of it and the amazement of it never ceases to fade. Because you know it's a crown that you didn't earn, right? You didn't earn it. Jesus, it was all him. This is not to celebrate your glory. It's to celebrate Jesus's glory. And perhaps that's why we get this picture of the elders kind of leading the way uh, in the book of Revelation where we'll take our crowns off. And we'll all throw them at the feet of Jesus because we recognize he's the only one deserving. He's the only one worthy. He's the holy one. And everything that we do, it's because he enabled us. He called us. He he gifted us. He empowered us. He entrusts to us people to lead. And he deserves all the praise, all the glory, all the honor, and all the crowns that we receive. So we gladly put them at his feet. You know, at a first read-through of this passage, you might think, man, this is just for the leaders, right? Church leaders, take notes. I hope you lead like that, because that would be really cool. Uh, but one of the things you notice in the passage is what are leaders doing? They're simply modeling for everybody else what they should be doing. You understand, the call to the leader is no different than the call to anybody else. We're all to be making disciples. We're all to be loving. This is, this is how we all should be leading someone. And so we just model, hopefully model 
in a Christ-like way what it looks like to live and love like Jesus. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your church, a church um, that was purchased by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. God, may we never get over that fact, that the reason why we gather, the reason why we're here is because of what Jesus has done and accomplished for us. And so, God, we pray that we will be a healthy church. With that comes some suffering, some messiness, some, some difficulty. But, God, it also comes with a great deal of hope and joy and excitement and an expectation of your coming return. So, God, may, may you give us the, the strength, the power, um, the encouragement to live and love like Jesus. We need your help to do that, so we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.